in the 1980s, the term mission statement became a management fad in corporate America. By the 90s, um, it really was, was taking, taking hold. And for-profit businesses, non-profit, small businesses, uh, large corporations, they were all trying to craft a mission statement. And by the 2000s, churches began to hop on board. And churches began to craft mission statements and try to have unique mission statements that were slightly different than the others. And Jonathan Lehman, commenting on this, he said that if you had asked pastors for the first 2,000 years of church history what their mission statement was, they would have looked confused by the question and then probably opened their Bibles and pointed to the last verses of Matthew 28. And in in pointing to Matthew 28, Jonathan Lehman argues, and, and I agree with him, that the mission of the church is to glorify God by making and being disciples of Christ. The mission of the church is to glorify God by making and being disciples of Jesus Christ. So if the mission is to glorify God by making and being disciples of Jesus Christ, the question is, how does the local church participate, pursue, and support that mission? And this this text, even though that list, the answer to that question, that list could be long, this text that we're in, 1 Corinthians 16, 1-11, identifies at least three broad categories of ways that churches can pursue and support that mission. And the way that that is, the way that churches support the mission, is by resourcing, participating, and sending. So churches support the mission of making and being disciples by resourcing, participating, and by sending. And so if you would, turn in your Bibles. We are in the book of 1 Corinthians. So you'll find that in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. And then turn to the back of 1 Corinthians. We are, we've been marching through this book, trying to go passage by passage. And we are now in chapter 16, which is the last chapter of 1 Corinthians. And if you're using one of the blue provided Bibles, that's going to be on page 962. If you're not familiar with looking at a Bible, just look for the big number 16 on page 962. And that's where we're going to start. And if you don't own a Bible, then please just consider that our church's gift to you. You can take that Bible home. But before we read this passage, I want to give you some context. So this group, this, this church in Corinth, was a church that Paul had planted. He had gone there, proclaimed the gospel, and people responded with faith, and a church was birthed. And he's now writing to them, and this letter that he wrote, 1 Corinthians, was written around 55 AD, so a little over 20 years after Jesus' earthly ministry. And this was a young church, and based off of a letter that he had written earlier, you can think of that as 0 Corinthians if you'd like, they responded And then we also got a report from Chloe's people, which he talks about in in chapter 1. And so based off that response from his first letter, and based off from that report from Chloe's people, he recognizes that this young church that he loves, that he cares for, that he wants to visit, this young church has a lot of issues. And if you go through the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll see plenty of those issues. I'm not going to recap them now, but you'll see no less than 10 issues. And the thing that Paul wants to bring to bear in the life of this church in Corinth is that we can, we, can, 
we must pursue what is true and what is right. So it gives them some direction. And then there are some other areas where there's not necessarily a clear black and white answer, but he wants them to elevate their unity in the Lord Jesus Christ above all else. And so what Paul is trying to, to put before this church is that unity in the Lord Jesus Christ must be primary among you. And so he explains clearly some things that they've gotten wrong, and he fixes. And then other things, he says, hey, consider one another before you consider yourself. Paul loves them. He wants them to be centered on the gospel. And as we're reading, reading this passage, he wants to visit them. And he doesn't just want to visit them. He wants to spend a lot of time with them. He really loves these people. And so let's look in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. And we'll camp out there and go through what Paul has for us in this text. So 1 Corinthians 16, starting in verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So, let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to, to spend some time studying it. We do pray that as we look at these 11 verses in 1 Corinthians 16, that we would be moved by them, that we would understand what it is that you are saying in them, and that we would structure our lives accordingly. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So in your bulletin, you'll find a page that has sermon notes, and there are three blanks there. And if you just want to know what those blanks are ahead of time, I will give them to you. So in this text, we see it broken up three ways. So in the first four verses, we see the fact that the way we support the church is by we resource. We resource. And then in verses 5 through 9, we'll cover the way that we participate. And then in the last two verses, we'll discuss how we send. So we resource, we participate, and we send. Remember, that's the, the primary uh, thrust of this text, that churches support the mission by resourcing, participating, and sending. So we'll just break that up and, and look at each one individually as we march through this text. So in verse 1, Paul makes this statement that we've now kind of grown accustomed to. He says, now concerning. So that introduces a new topic. We've seen it in chapter 7, twice in verse 1 and in verse 25. We see it in chapter 8 as that chapter starts. We see it in chapter 12. And now we see it here in chapter 16. We see it in verse 1 and then, Lord willing, next week we'll see it in verse 12. So Paul, when he says now concerning, you can just kind of register that in your mind that, okay, this is a new topic. There's, there's now another issue that Paul is discussing, trying to give guidance on. And this new topic 
that he's bringing up is the collection of the saints. The collection for the saints. He's now concerning the collection for the saints. Now, he had already given direction to the church in Galatia. He mentions that. And now, he is trying to give the same info that he gave to the church in Galatia to the church in Corinth. And it's amazing how remarkably consistent Paul is. We see, and he's trying to make this point as he talks to the Corinthians. He's like, hey, I'm not just, this isn't just a unique thing to you guys. I'm trying to tell you guys what I've told all the churches. We see this in chapter 4, verse 17. He says, I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. In chapter 7, verse 17, when he's talking about singleness and marriage, he says, this is my rule in all the churches. So it's not unique to you, Corinthians. It's my rule in all the churches. In 1 Corinthians 11, where he's talking about male headship, in, in verse 16, he says, If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So what he's putting forth to them is something that all the churches of God have agreed on. And then in chapter 14, verse 33, when he's talking about orderly worship, he uses the phrase that this is how it's done in all the churches of the saints. Paul is remarkably consistent. And now, when it comes to the collection for the saints, he says, look, as I told the church in Galatia, I'm now going to tell you the same thing. So what does he tell them? So he tells them that as a church, collectively, they're to set aside resources for gospel ministry. And then he gives them some pretty clear instructions. So this first point, we resource. Paul gives clear instruction for the Corinthians, and it's the same instruction that he gave to the church in Galatia. So he answers the when question. Look in verse 2. He says, on the first day. So when the church is gathered, this implies that this was a worshipful act. That when they gathered, one of the ways that they reflected that they valued Christ above all else was they were setting aside resources so that the gospel ministry could go forth in other ways places. So he answers the when question. And then he answers the how often question. So is this a once a year thing? Is this a quarterly thing? He says on the first day of every week. So this is a regular way of worshiping. It's a weekly thing for them. And then he answers the who question. Like, okay, okay, Paul. So this is a regular thing. This is a a weekly thing. This is something that should be done on the first day of the week. We get it. Uh, So that's just for the wealthy and those who are spiritually mature, right? He says, no, each of you. It's not just the wealthy, not just the the spiritually mature. Each member of the church is to set aside something on the first day of each week. And then Paul, recognizing that money is just a weird and kind of touchy topic, he says in verse 3, verse 3 and 4, that when he arrives, he'll he'll send those whom the church in Corinth has accredited. So he says, look, I know that money can be kind of a touchy issue. He says, look, this money that you're setting aside for the gospel work that's going on in Jerusalem, choose credible people to take it. And if you see fit for me to join them, they can come with me. I'll go with them. But Paul is trying to be above reproach here when it comes to the use of resources. And so this first point, what I want us to see is that the church supports the mission of making and being disciples by providing resources for gospel work. How do they do that? They do it regularly. 
they regularly set aside the first fruits of their finances to fund that work. And look, I just want to be clear. This is not a way to earn favor with God. God cannot be bought. Everything is his anyway. And so the way that we give, the way that we set aside resources for gospel work, does not earn favor with God. But because Christ sacrificially gave everything, his status, his riches, his comfort, because he sacrificially gave everything so that we could be restored to God, we joyfully give what he's called us to give so that the good news of the gospel can go forward. We don't do it to earn favor with God. We do it out of a response of what he has graciously done for us. And so if you're a Christian in the room, two questions. Two questions. First, are you worshiping God with your finances? Are you worshiping God with your finances? Proverbs 3.9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. So before anyone else gets it, honor the Lord with your wealth. Does God have first priority when it comes to the way that you spend your money? Second question. Are you reluctant to give or are you cheerful? Are you reluctant or cheerful? Paul, when, he, when he's writing to the Corinthians again, we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, if you're looking there, it's, it's verses 6, 6 and 7. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And look, you'll never cheerfully give. You'll never joyfully give away the first fruits of your labor if the gospel hasn't first gripped you. You can, you can do it to check off a box, and you can feel decent about that, but you're never truly and, and, and honestly going to give joyfully and cheerfully unless the gospel has first gripped you. Because Christ himself gave not just the first fruits. Christ gave everything. He gave everything so that we could be restored to God. And it wasn't for his gain. But it was for the gain of all those who confess him as Savior and King. And look, Christ didn't give everything reluctantly. It wasn't him just submitting to the Father saying, okay, I guess this is what you want me to do, so I'm going to do it. He did it joyfully. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He did it out of joy. And so if you want to know how to give cheerfully and, and sacrificially the way that we're called to, then instead of looking at what you're missing out on when you give those funds away, look at Christ who joyfully gave away everything so that we could be restored to the Father. Okay. All right, Rob. You get it? I, I want to be a cheerful and sacrificial giver. Question that may naturally pop up is how much? How much should I give? So in the Old Testament, we see, we see this word tithe. It floats around a lot. And tithe just means 10%. We also see other kinds of offerings that are instructed to the Israelites. And if you, com if you combine the tithe 
and the offerings that they were expected to give that came out to be around 23% of their income. Now in the New Testament, we don't see the tithe advocated for. Now, as others will, will point out, we also don't, don't see the tithe done away with either. So, I'll just submit to you, theologians disagree on this when it comes to how much. Some say 10% a tithe. Some say sacrificially and cheerfully. You're reasonable people. So you look into that and, and come to a conclusion yourselves. I will share with you that right now, I am convinced that the New Testament does not command a flat percent. But rather, I'm convinced that the New Testament advocates cheerful and sacrificial giving. 2 Corinthians 8.3 We see that they gave according to their means and beyond their means of their own accord. So some gave according to their means, others went above their means, but it was according to their own accord. And so for many, 10% might be a good benchmark. For some, that might be more than what they can, they're able to do. For others, maybe they can afford more than 10%. But the point is that it's sacrificial and it's cheerful. You should feel it when you give your first fruits away toward gospel work. 2 Corinthians 9-7, again, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Okay, so now the next question. Maybe, okay, Rob, I want to be a cheerful and sacrificial giver. And now I've got a percentage in mind. So whatever that percentage is, question that may come up after that is, does it all go to my local church? And so I might get in trouble for this, but I agree with R.C. Sproul, who says that it is simply not biblical to require people to give their entire tithe to their local church. However, he goes on, I do believe that the lion's share, or the majority of it, should go to the local church. And so maybe you have a percentage in mind. I agree with Sproul that I don't think that it all needs to go to your local church. And I'm speaking as someone who, who benefits from you giving to your local church. However, I agree with Sproul that it, the, the majority or the lion's share should. And, and the primary reason for that is because the local church is God's primary instrument, God's primary vehicle for the gospel going forward. Parachurch ministries are great. I have benefited tremendously from parachurch ministries. However, parachurch ministries are not the body and bride of Christ. Parachurch ministries are not the Christian's primary context for discipleship and discipling. The local church is. So by God's grace, just, just all cards on the table, as a church, we're doing well financially. So this is not, this is not a sermon to try to get people to give more so that we can do more. By, by your generosity, we're, we're doing well financially. Thank you for that. However, it is an opportunity to worship our king who gave everything for us. As a part of your discipleship is being willing to joyfully and cheerfully give what, away a portion of what God has given you. And some here are yet to trust God with their finances. And look, I, I say this. Whenever we go through a membership class and we go through the membership covenant and we talk about what is expected of members here, I point out, hey, God doesn't need your money. This church does not need your money. God will build his church. However, it is an opportunity 
for you to worship him, and it is a privilege that he uses the generosity of his people to help the gospel go forward. And so each time we give cheerfully and sacrificially, what we're doing is we are exercising trust in God. We're proclaiming that the gospel is worth more than whatever percentage I'm giving toward gospel work. The gospel going forward is worth more than that amount that I'm missing out on. And then we also follow Jesus' command to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so maybe you're a skeptic in here. If you are, thank you for being here, genuinely. Hope you continue to come back. And if you have any questions about all this, please feel free to ask. But maybe it seems to you that all churches care about is money. And you sitting here, hearing this sermon, is just further affirming those beliefs that you have. And so look, I just want to submit to you that the reason that we're talking about money today is because we're committed to expositional preaching. We, as I said earlier, we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. So just to give you a glimpse into some of the things that we've talked about in chapter 11, we talked about godly headship and submission, talked about the Lord's Supper. In chapter 12, we saw spiritual gifts. Chapter 13, we discussed love. Chapter 14, we spent some time looking at orderly worship and the use of some of those gifts. And in chapter 15, we spent four weeks talking about the resurrection and the implications of the resurrection. And so, we're not constantly hitting on money. In fact, this is probably the most I've spoken about money in two, two and a half years that our church has been around. And believe me, there's some awkwardness to it. However, this probably won't be the last time that it comes up because the scriptures talk about money a decent bit. Now, why is that? Probably, likely, because the way that we use our money reflects our heart. It shows what we prioritize. And so, it matters what we do with the funds that God has entrusted to us. Okay, so why is Paul commanding all these churches to set aside money? What's going on? And you can look into some of the historical background of what was going on in the church in Jerusalem. Some say there was a famine. Some say they were giving away all of their things a little too quickly. And so now they found themselves impoverished. Whatever it is, you, you can spend some time looking into, but that's not the point of why Paul is trying to, to encourage this church in Corinth to support the church in Jerusalem. Charles Hodge puts it this way. He says the religious effect that these gifts were to produce was promoting Christian fellowship, that we are working together. It's not that church versus this church. It's not them versus us. We are on the same team. It's part of the reason why we pray for other churches each Sunday. Because we want to promote camaraderie. But we are gladly working with other churches. We're, glad, we're grateful for the, the fruit that other churches have seen and continue to see. Like-minded churches fellowship together. They associate. They convene. They work together for the furtherance of the gospel. To help gospels be made and to help, those who, or to help disciples be made and to help disciples continue to walk in those contexts where those churches are. Corinth, just to be clear, them working together, they were not exercising authority over the church in Jerusalem. They were coming alongside. And, and Baptists, uh, we're a Baptist church, Baptists for centuries have agreed with this. If you look at the Second London Confession in, in chapter 26, paragraph 14, we read that when churches are planted by the providence of God, they should have fellowship among themselves for 
their peace, growth in love, and mutual edification. The reason we work together with other churches is so that the gospel can go forward, and in doing so, it increases our peace, our growth in love, and mutual edification. Cooperation in gospel work is a good thing. We see the church in Corinth here being commanded by Paul to cooperate with the church in Jerusalem. We never want to be an isolated church. Wickedness is given a long leash in isolation. We want to fellowship and work together with like-minded gospel works. And so we resource the gospel, as we see here, so that disciples can be made, and we build fellowship with others engaged in that gospel work. However, resourcing isn't the only thing that we do. So I spent the majority of time on that just because of all the questions and all the things that come around money, but we also participate. That's the second point in your bulletin there. And so look at Paul here in verse 5. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. And so Paul really wants to participate in the gospel work that is going on in Corinth. He wants to be with them. He plans to see them. He's hoping to stay the winter with them. But he doesn't go immediately. Why? Look at verse 8. He says, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For, here's his reasoning, a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And so Paul wants to come along the Corinthian church. He wants to participate in what's going on there. But he doesn't leave for Corinth yet. Why? Because God has provided him with gospel work in Ephesus. He says God has opened a wide door for effective ministry. He prioritizes, Paul prioritizes the gospel work that God has placed in front of him over his own preferences to go see this church in Corinth. You can only imagine the concern that Paul's having. This church that he loves dearly, that he helps start, is going in all kinds of wild directions. He probably feels a sense of urgency to be with them. And he desires that. He prefers that. But he says, the Lord has put effective gospel work in front of me right now. And I can't just leave that. I have to participate in it here. So what opportunities has God given you? Maybe those opportunities aren't your preference. Are you prioritizing those opportunities? Does Paul prioritize the one in Ephesus? Or are you holding out for something a little more preferable? Maybe you want to serve in, in this way over here. That's your preference. So until something like that opens up, you're just going to hold off. There's gospel work around us that we are called to be engaged in. And here's the thing. God never promised that gospel work to be easy. We're just not given that promise. And Paul makes that clear. If you look at the second part of verse 9, he says, For wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. So as long as we live in a fallen world, there will be adversaries to the gospel. We can count on that. We can bank that. And sometimes, as Paul's made clear here, adversaries are evidence that there is good gospel work being done. God's opened up the door for effective gospel work, and there are many adversaries. So if you have no adversaries, 
when it comes to the, the things that you are trying to engage in for the furtherance of the gospel, if you have no adversaries at all, it may be a reason for concern. God has told us that we will have trouble in this world. Luke 6, 26, when Jesus is talking to the 12 disciples, he says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to false prophets. So if all people speak well of you, you're in the same territory as false prophets. Charles McKay, a, uh, a Scottish poet in the 1800s, he writes this. He says, you have no enemies, you say? Alas, my friend, the boast is poor. He who has mingled in the fray of duty that the brave endure must have made foes. If you have none, small is the work that you have done. You've hit no traitor on the hip. You've dashed no cup from the perjured lip. You've never turned the wrong to right. You've been a coward in the fight. Don't be turned away by adversaries. However, with that said, I want to be very clear. I am not saying to go out and make a bunch of enemies just to prove that you're not a coward. Not what I'm saying. We are still called to reflect the fruit of the Spirit in the way that we engage this world. In the gospel ministry that God has placed before us, we should still engage in that in a way that reflects the fruit of the Spirit that we see in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The way that we engage in that gospel work should reflect that fruit. With that, I am saying, don't view adversaries to that work as reason not to engage in that work. There will be adversaries. John 15, 18, again, Jesus talking to his disciples said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So if Christ had adversaries, we will too. So we support the mission by participating in the work that God has placed around us. Even when that work doesn't align with our preferences, even when it's inconvenient, even when it adds stress, even when it's costly, and even when it brings persecution. Because look, Christ going to the cross for his people wasn't his preference. We see when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, he says, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He submitted his, his earthly will to the Father. And he continued to press forward in the gospel work that God had put before him. It was certainly, I think we'd all agree, inconvenient. It added stress. In Luke 22, we read that, and being in agony, Christ prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood. The gospel work that he was faithfully walking in brought great stress to our Savior. It was costly. It brought him persecution. Yet, he still went. So that all who turn from their sin and confess him as king and confess them as savior, confess him as savior, can have their sin buried with him. Praise God for him stepping into that gospel work even when it was inconvenient. Praise God for him participating. So brothers and sisters, don't allow adversaries to keep you from engaging in that gospel work. Recognize the opportunities that God has placed in front of you and step into them. Trusting that the Lord has placed them in front of you for a reason. Be that at work with non-Christians, 
sharing the gospel with them. Maybe at work with other Christians, trying to encourage them. Some of you have already shared with me ways that in your company, there's been a prayer group that started. I can't tell you how encouraged I am to hear that you are participating in those ways to encourage other believers around you, and potentially non-believers who are curious about what's going on. Parents, make your, your family's discipleship, make that a priority. Husbands, lead in this. Wives, help in it. If you're not sure how to do that, if you turn to page 7 in your bulletin, we've just given you a few simple ideas as to how to lead family worship in your family. It doesn't have to be a long sermon that you prepare with four songs and doxology at the end and a benediction. It doesn't need to be that. But engage in the discipleship of your family. Make that a priority. If you're married and don't have kids, don't be spiritual strangers. Know each other well. Know how the other is doing spiritually. Take time and set it aside for knowing one another spiritually. If you're single, then use the flexibility in your schedule strategically to help others be and make disciples. And so how do we participate? That's what this whole section is about, is participating. So how? We simply just need to look at the last few verses of Matthew 28 where the Lord Jesus, after saying all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, says to go make disciples. So help other Christians follow Christ. That's what discipleship is. But also evangelize the lost. No one becomes a Christian without first hearing the gospel. So evangelize, share the good news. Then he says baptizing them. So publicly affirm their spiritual and physical union to Christ through baptism and through the ordinances. Take those seriously. And then teach them. All whom we baptize, he says, to teach. We're obligated to teach them. And so discipleship requires that teaching. It's not just hanging out. Go through a book together. Whether that be a book of the Bible or a book that will aid in your, in your walk. Pray with one another. And so in addition to resourcing and participating in gospel work, we also, here's the third point in your bulletin, we also send. We also send. And so in verse 10, we can see, verses 10 and 11, at least three ways that we send. So he says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. So verse 10, the first thing that we see in the ways that we help send gospel workers, this seems antithetical, but we receive gospel workers. That's one of the ways that we can help send them, is that when they are here, when they are taking a break from the work that they're doing, they're here, we receive them joyfully. We care for them. He says to receive Timothy. Give him no reason to fear. Be hospitable. Meet his needs. Take care of this missionary. And so when we have missionaries among us, we want to take care of them. To be hospitable to them. Because that ultimately helps send them on their way when it is time for them to go. He says, let no one despise Timothy. So he's telling the Corinthian church, hey, don't receive him begrudgingly. Let no one despise him. Joyfully bring him in. Begrudging hospitality is not Christian hospitality. Proverbs 23 hits on this in verses 6 and 7. It says, Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies. For he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink. He says to you, but his heart is not with you. And so we're not, we don't want to be begrudging in our hospitality. 
Paul wants the Corinthians to joyfully welcome and care for Timothy when he visits because that is Christ's posture toward us. That's God's posture towards us. He joyfully welcomes us in. He's joyfully hospitable toward us, even at great cost to himself. But we don't just receive gospel workers. We also raise up gospel workers. Paul, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy, we see this in chapter 2, verse 2. He's talking to Timothy. He's a young pastor that he discipled. He says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so as a church, we have a command to raise up disciples, to make and be disciples. However, we also have a responsibility to raise up other pastors and other missionaries so that we can then send out to do gospel work in other contexts. Whether that's the church right down the road or whether that's on the other side of the world. We want to raise up not only disciples, but also pastors and missionaries. We have a responsibility to do that. And then the third thing, so we receive, we raise up, and then we release gospel workers. Look at verse 6. Paul said, perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. He expects the Corinthians to help him to go on to the next place. And in verse 11, he says, help Timothy on his way. So those whom the Lord entrusts to us, church, we need to understand this. Those whom the Lord entrusts to us, they are not ours. We want to raise them up and if the Lord wills it, send them out. Release them. We send out pastors. We send out missionaries. We send out other disciples to aid in that work. And look, gospel goodbyes, sending out people from our church to do gospel work elsewhere, it is painful. But it's healthy. So let's be willing and ready to send out those whom we raise up. We support the mission by helping send gospel workers. And we help send gospel workers by receiving them, by raising them up, and by releasing them. And so look, as a church, we have a mission to make and be disciples. That mission statement for every church is found in Matthew 28. However, it is not Mission Impossible. I was a big fan of Mission Impossible movies. Ethan Hunt is one of my favorite spies ever. But we are not engaged in Mission Impossible. We have a mission that has been given to us. And God has given us himself. He's equipped us with himself to accomplish that mission. So by seeing Christ clearly, by pursuing Christ and Christ-centeredness, churches are moved to support the mission by resourcing, participating, and sending. Look, on this Palm Sunday, we are reminded of that. We see Christ entering in to Jerusalem. We're reminded that the Father sent his Son. He enters in. And the Son entered humanity as Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior. And he did that to secure and proclaim the good news of freedom from sin. But then, he didn't just send him. We also see that the Son participated in the gospel work that was before him. He lived an entire life without sin. He walked perfectly. None of us have done that. We all stand sinful and condemned before God. However, at great cost, he resources us with all that we need for redemption. 
He makes a way for us to receive his righteousness and for him to take our sin. And then he places his spirit inside us so that we can continue to walk in the good works that God has prepared for us to walk in. If you have not received Christ, if you have not entrusted yourself to him, call on him today. None of the things that we said here are going to be possible long-term apart from you in submitting yourself to King Jesus. Your sin can be washed away. You can receive the righteousness you need to be made right with a holy and righteous God. And it all comes through one God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is offered to you freely. And so as we consider Christ entering into Jerusalem, consider the ways that he has participated. Consider the ways that he has given much so that we can be made right with the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good news. Help us to be a church that faithfully engages in the gospel work that you have put before us. Help us to sacrificially send, participate, and resource. Thank you for sending your son to be the example for us in each of those things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.